we will get started. All right, let me go ahead and draw your attention to my extra piece of fine furniture up front this morning. If you've been around for a while, you know what I'm talking about. If you're new with us this morning, this fine piece of furniture um, has never been with us before. Um, we have been using the, the, the music stands, but a few months ago, um, I asked one of our very own, Adam Hawksett, um, if he would consider designing and building a pulpit for us. Um, I saw some work that he had done with reclaimed railroad tracks and, and metal, and I thought, what a great statement about Richmond, railroad tracks and, and iron. If we could have a pulpit made of that that we could preach from for for generations, wouldn't that be great? Just throw it out there. What was it like a week later or so? He sends me like 3D sketches and designs of his pulpit, and I just got excited. I mean, I, I'm serious. I was excited, um, and I thought, "Oh, this is going to be fantastic." And a little time goes by, and he comes back and he said, I, "I found something better." And I was like, "What's that?" He said, "I found reclaimed wood from St. Andrew's Chapel that we could use for the pulpit." And so. A couple of hundred years ago, when God called some men to plant a church and they hewn the wood to build that church the gospel would be preached in, God knew a couple hundred years later that wood would be continued to use for his gospel to go forward. And Adam took that reclaimed wood and he built this pulpit for us so that we could continue to preach the gospel here for generations. And Ray and I at some point will preach a sermon about the role of the pulpit. It deserves a sermon in and of itself, but... Thank you. Thanks, Adam. And for those of you who don't know, yeah. One of the things that God has blessed us with here are a number of men and women with some fantastic artistic talent. Um, if you were here during the Christmas season last year, you witnessed Duncan Robertson's oil paintings as we did a, a, a CF. Ooh, where's Duncan? Are you here, Duncan? I haven't seen you this morning. Duncan, you here? In the back? One of these days, we're going to get him back up here, but Every week, Duncan painted a new oil painting around the series that we were doing during the Advent time, Songs of the Story, about the songs of the birth of Jesus. And, and, and so many of you have some unbelievable artistic talent that we want to celebrate and, and we want to see used for the, the display of God's glory and the preaching of his gospel. So it's exciting for us every time we get to see God's gifts in you come out in these ways. So uh, love this thing. It is another way to keep me from wandering, I think. Um, for those of you who are new with us, I like to wander. And when we moved the room, they gave me multiple runways. Um, I thought about putting another pulpit in the middle right there so that I could just go from one to the other and could just talk to different groups. And at some point, we may come in the round. Um, but they put me on a platform and put me behind this thing, and it just deserves to be preached from. So I think I might just have to stand for a little bit. So if I seem like I'm shaking and twitching, it's not the coffee. It's me just not wandering away from this thing. Um, and the other thing, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you've been here for a while, um, your attention is somewhat piqued by, um, why in the world am I wearing a suit and a tie? Um, the pulpit deserves the suit and the tie. <laughs> I mean, it does. Seriously, it does. It does. I mean, it deserves the suit and the tie. Um, but before I even knew the pulpit was going to be here, um, my son asked if we could both wear ties today. And so I said, I'll do that. Um, but more importantly, um, I, 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 I left the suit on today that I actually wore yesterday. And I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the suit today um, as we preach more as a reminder to myself um, of the gravity, the eternality, but yet the brevity of, of life here on earth. So yesterday I, I wore this suit and this tie um, to a funeral that I did for a 33-year-old guy named Robert. One of the strangest experiences I've had in my life. I buried my son, I buried a good friend, I buried other family, but I buried a 33-year-old guy named Robert yesterday who loved to read who was intrigued and had a deep understanding of the Word of God. He was athletic, he was intelligent, 
He was a father of a new son who will turn one on Monday. But in the last seasons of his life, he, he had lost a, a grip. He had lost a firm grip on the realities of who God is and what he's done. And he began to lose a sense of confidence and a, a sense of certainty and a number of the same questions that you and I struggle with. And as I preached his funeral yesterday and said my name some 30 times about this man's life and his struggles and his hope, it, it hit me. This is, this is not a game that we play. The life we live is not a game that we have to, to do with what we will. The decisions we make, the things we hold on to, the things we hope in, the confidence that we find in things has eternal, eternal value. But Robert struggled with many of the same questions that you and I struggle with. Does God have a purpose for me? And what is God's plan for my life? How or where does God fit into the story of my life given all that I know about myself? Have you ever asked those questions? Have you ever struggled with any of those questions? Have you ever even cared about any of those questions? The answers, though, if you have, and if you're honest, I think you have, the answers to those questions carry eternal consequences. And here's what I've come to realize, and it came home more powerfully to me yesterday in the midst of this funeral than I think it has in a long time. Here's, here's what I came to realize. Those are not the right questions. So many of us, and I would say all of us in this room at some point or another have wrestled with the certainty of those questions. What is God's plan for my life? How does God fit into the story of my life? You know what? That's the wrong question to ask. And because it's the wrong question to ask, we've been struggling to find certainty and hope with the wrong answers. And we've wound up not only as individuals, but as a people, as a culture, as a generation, as a, as a larger body of people for generations, struggling to find some kind of foundation and purpose and certainty in answers that were never meant to be given to questions that were never meant to be asked. We've been asking the wrong questions. So what are the right questions? I'm glad you asked. Because I will tell you, but I'm not going to tell you right now. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We're going to start a new series going through this wonderful book that may very well turn out to be one of the longer series we've done. If you've been around here for a while, you'll think, how is that possible? Well, it's possible. And right out of the gate this morning, as we start looking and reading through the book of Acts, we're going to be hit with a few things. And I don't want to surprise you this morning. Uh, I want to tell you exactly where we're going. Um, I, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to learn a lesson in preaching from Ray. I'm going to tell you exactly what we're going to do this morning so that you won't have to wonder. As soon as we get into the book of Acts, we're going to be hit with a few things. We're going to have to look this morning and understand who wrote this book. How did he write this book? Who did he write this book for and why in the world did he do it? And by God's grace, when we do all of that, I think we'll be able to then say, these are the right questions that we're supposed to ask about how we understand our life here on earth and find certainty and hope and confidence in this life here on earth. So let me pray for us and then we will, we will get going. Father, thank you for the privilege, the privilege that we have to, to come together as your people, to be encouraged by your grace and by your mercy, to be strengthened by the confidence that we can have in your goodness, in your purposes, and in your plans. And I ask this morning, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, in the time that we have, using very frail, very weak, and very broken words that I may say that you would do what only you can do to bring that kind of courage, to bring that kind of joy, to bring that kind of confidence, to bring that kind of certainty to our hearts this morning. We ask this, that your name may be glorified in, in this place as we continue to live lives that increasingly reflect an enjoyment in your grace. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1, that's where we're going to start, and it starts like this. In the first book 
O Theophilus. And that's how far we're going to go. If you wondered how it was going to be a long series, you'll see how it's going to be a long series. In the first book, O Theophilus, don't get worried. We'll, we'll, pick it, we'll pick it back up. So first thing you've got to see, because we're going to understand a little bit about Acts before we can get into it for this long period of time. The first thing you've got to understand when you read that is that there must be another book somehow connected to this thing. I mean, if we're going to read Acts and we're going to understand what's being said in Acts and what the purpose of Acts is and, and how God's going to use Acts in our life and, and in this time, you've got to understand that it's not all by itself. There's another book. So where do we figure out what that other book is? I'll help you out. Go backwards in your Bible a few books. Go backwards from John over to Luke. Turn left in your Bibles. Go to the heading in your Bible called Luke. That is the gospel according to Luke. And when you get there, go to chapter 1. And this is what you'll find. And as much, Luke says as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all of these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Acts has another book that goes with it, and it's I do the work for you, and we go backwards to Luke, you'll find that the gospel according to Luke is the book that goes with the book of Acts. So if we're going to understand a little bit of why the book of Acts was written, we've got to understand a little bit about who wrote the book of Luke, why he wrote the book of Luke, who he wrote the book of Luke to, how he wrote it, and what the purpose was. Is that cool this morning? Because we want to understand Acts, right? And we want to try to get the right questions to ask about our lives and how we understand these things, and we're going to do that as we go through Acts, but we need to understand this if we're going to get it. So let me tell you a little bit about who wrote the book of Acts and, and who wrote this two-part volume, really, of the gospel of Luke in Acts. You know what his name was? Luke. It's not a trick question. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And there are some times in the Bible, like the book of Hebrews, and some other books in the Bible, when we don't really know who wrote them. We're not really sure who wrote them. A lot of us have opinions on who wrote them, but we can't really be sure. But we know this much for sure about Acts and about Luke. Luke wrote them. And we find out things about Luke all throughout the scriptures. He's mentioned all throughout the New Testament, all four times that he's mentioned throughout the New Testament. But we find out some things about Luke that I think you need to know if we're going to go through this. The first thing that we find out about Luke, the guy who wrote this first volume, the gospel according to Luke, and Acts, this second volume that we're going to spend our time in, the first thing we find out about Luke as we read the New Testament, we find out from Paul, we find out in the book of Colossians chapter 4 that Luke wasn't a pastor, he wasn't an evangelist, he wasn't a preacher, he was what? He was a doctor. The man who wrote what is arguably the most comprehensive volumes in the New Testament. He and the Apostle Paul, too, wrote the most work in the New Testament. Was not a pastor, was not an evangelist, was not a preacher. He was a doctor. He was a man who had spent his life cultivating a vocation, cultivating a skill, and it had nothing to do with preaching. But God used him to do what he has done. So he's a, he's a pastor, and that's what he does. And we find out, as we continue to read the New Testament, that he travels a lot with the Apostle Paul. Because on numerous occasions in Paul's letters, we hear Paul mentioning Luke as a fellow worker in the gospel. So we know that Luke was a doctor. At some point, his, his heart had a collision with the reality of who Jesus was and what he had done for him. And then we find him traveling with the Apostle Paul, such to the degree that the Apostle Paul calls him a fellow worker in what he does. And then we find some things out about Luke in the book of Acts. And we'll see as we spend time going through Acts, we're going to come to some places later on around chapter 9 through about chapters 14, where there are these passages where the man who's writing the book of Acts all of a sudden slips into first person. He starts talking about things we did. And all of a sudden, you start hearing about the Apostle Paul and going into towns like Philippi, and, and we were doing these things amongst the people, and we find out that here's this doctor no longer spending his time practicing medicine in Antioch, which is probably where he was from, 
but he has joined this absolutely radically converted rabbi in traveling around the region talking about this resurrected man named Jesus. And we get a little bit about Luke and his person in the book of Acts as he narrates his own journeys with the apostle Paul. But one of the things I want to point out, because we're going to learn a lot about Luke as we go through this, the man who wrote these two volumes. I want to point out one thing about Luke that I want you to hold on to and I want you to notice as we spend our time going through Acts. I want you to notice and think about the characteristic of Luke's loyalty as we read the book of Acts. He was a man of astounding loyalty. And not just loyalty to Paul. I mean, you'll find in 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4 or is it chapter 7? I can't remember. In 2 Timothy, you find the story of the apostle Paul. Everything's hitting the fan around Paul. People are ready to kill him. He's ready to get thrown in prison. And all of his friends and all the church, what do they do? They stand up and fight for Paul's justice. They stand up and defend Paul in the face of his persecutors. Oh, they run like cockroaches down to Ephesus and Cyprus. As soon as it hits the fan, they're gone. I love you, Paul. You're great, Paul. We're going to follow you to the ends of the earth, Paul. See you, Paul. It's gotten, it's gotten tough. But here's this doctor, this Gentile doctor, this skeptic, as we'll see, who came to understand the truths and the certainty of who Jesus was and what that meant for his life, leaving all that he had known to go with this man, Paul, to preach the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel preached before. And when it hits the fan in 2 Timothy, what we find is that the only man left standing with Paul is Luke. When everything went wrong, when it cost you everything you had to be associated with this man in the name Jesus, the loyalty that Luke had was not to himself, to his own comfort, to his own security, to his own life, to his own breath, but it was to the gospel, and it was to his friend, Paul. And so it won't surprise you as you continue reading the New Testament on your own, and you read Paul's letters, and you hear him mention his friend, the beloved doctor, the beloved Luke. That's the man who wrote the book of Acts. A skeptical Gentile man who had had an encounter with the word of God and the person in the face of Jesus Christ who had been so transformed and, and so impassioned. I mean, you have to have a certain passion and a certain certainty and a certain hope and a certain confidence to do what Luke had done. I mean, imagine, put yourself in there. Be human for a second as you read the Bible. Imagine yourself in, in the comfort of what you do. The years you've spent growing the expertise and the training in what you do. Imagine coming to the place where the gospel has become so alive into your heart. The hope of the gospel has become so certain to your soul. The joy of the gospel has become so tangible that you're willing to follow the direction of God wherever he may lead you. When your friends look at you and say, what are you, a moron? You know how much time you spent going to medical school? You know how much money that's going to cost you? You're the only doctor in this little town. It's like a little house on the prairie. What, 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 you've got a market here. What are you doing? But this man who wrote this book, this two-volume work, was a man of great passion, a man of great certainty in who Jesus was and what he had done, a man of great loyalty to the gospel, and I want you to see that as we work through the book of Acts. And there's a lot that we could say about this man who wrote this book, Luke. We could point out his, his humility, how we've got this two-part volume that takes up roughly probably 70% of the entire New Testament and not once really does he even mention himself. We have to find out about him in other parts of the New Testament about what people said about him. A man willing to hide himself in the shadows so that the truths of what he's trying to proclaim can come out into the light and be seen for all that they are. What humility. I want you to remember that and I want you to look for that as we go through Acts in the next, well, while that we spend looking through that book. So that's who wrote it, but how did he write it? This is one of my most favorite things. I want you to see this because this carries over into the book of Acts. Remember, he wrote Luke and Acts. So now he's going to tell us how he wrote it. Listen to this. 
And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So there's already books written about this thing. There's already books and things written about what he's going to write about, and there are still eyewitnesses to this that are alive to this day. But that doesn't satisfy him. It doesn't satisfy him. I love this. Listen, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. I love it. I love it. Listen to this. Luke is not some swallow the hook and the bait kind of guy. I mean, Luke, when he wrote this Gospel of Luke, he had the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, sitting right in front of him. We know that because he quotes 60% of it verbatim in his own writing. He had that right in front of him, but he wasn't satisfied with it. Oh, so, so Jesus walked on the water. Who saw that? Let me go get on my donkey and go find that out. No, no, let me just know exactly. Luke was a man who needed certainty. Luke was a Gentile, skeptical man who was a physician. That didn't leave him when he got saved. Luke was a man who wanted this person he was writing this letter to and those who would read this letter to have the same kind of certainty and understanding and confidence that he had. So when Luke came across something that he had read or something that he had heard, he had to make sure of it for himself. He had to know for himself. He was willing to get on his donkey and ride to talk to that person who had said that they had seen this thing about this person of Jesus and what he had done. And he needed to know that for himself because he needed to know that for you. I want you to know this. If if you're a skeptical person by nature, or, or if you're someone who's, who, who's wrestling and, and, and a bit skeptical of the, of the claims of the person of Jesus and the truth of the gospel or what Christians might believe, I want to encourage you, the apostle Luke, not the, the writer Luke, sorry, he would love you. He would love you. He was writing these works just for you. If you've got questions, if you've got struggles, if you've got doubts, we're glad that you're here. Please ask them. And please ask them as you read this. This man would love to talk to you. You were the person that he was thinking of as he was writing this down. But who got the original one? If he wrote it by digging out all of the eyewitness accounts and compiling all the narratives and making sure that all of the I's were dotted and T's were crossed and facts were right so that the certainty of what had been said and what had been done could be given, who was he trying to give it to? Why did he go about doing this? Think of the word. I mean, how much easier would it have been to take Mark and transcribe Mark, add a couple of things and send it on its way by pigeon? Instead, no, he did the work. He did the work of searching these things out. Why? Why did he do it? Who was he writing this for? Well, Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus, further referred to as Theo, if that's okay with you. Theophilus is going to be a mouthful for a while. So we're going to call him Theo. In, in, in Luke 1, not the Cosby show, um, that would be a good thing, trivia people. wonder if Theo was named a Theophilus. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Okay, maybe not. Interesting to me, obviously not interesting to you. Um, in Luke chapter 1, Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus. And this is a title that Luke uses three other times in the book of Acts. And every time that Luke uses that title, the most excellent, he's always talking about a Roman official. He's always talking about some kind of higher up in, in Rome. So anytime you see the phrase most excellent, he's referencing someone in the Roman government usually somebody who's not a believer, someone who's maybe a skeptic or someone who's come into contact with the message of the gospel. And, and, but here's the circumstance. This man, Theophilus, who most likely, we don't know for sure, is probably some type of Roman aristocrat. We don't really know exactly what he did or who he was or what he was about, but given what we know about what Luke calls him, he was most likely some kind of Roman aristocrat who had come into contact with the message of the gospel. And, and maybe he had believed it, and maybe his heart had begun to change. Maybe he had begun to trust in what he had heard about this person, Jesus, or maybe he just had a lot of questions about what he had heard and what he was being faced with. But either way, he somehow had a relationship with Luke. And the reality of the questions that he had and the uncertainties that he had had come to the surface. And Luke, I love this. What does this tell you about Luke? Luke, knowing this man, 
the uncertainties and the questions that he had, whether he was a new believer or whether someone he was just skeptical about what he was hearing, in order that he, in order that he may be free from the fog of the uncertainty that he was wrestling with, he sat down to compile these works for him. The book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by a skeptical guy to a skeptical guy for the reason that he may have certainty, that he may have a firm foundation, that he may, may no longer be trapped by the fog and the grayness of the uncertainty that somehow had sprung up in his heart and in his life. So Luke, Acts, that great volume, were written by a skeptic to a religious skeptic. They might have certainty. Listen to how he says it here in the end of Luke 1, verse 4. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And here's what I don't want you to miss this morning as we start this journey through Acts and we start here in the book of Luke. I don't want you to miss what's at stake. Eternity is at stake in how we answer the questions we talked about in the beginning. Eternity is at stake in how we understand the certainty, the foundation the solid hope that we have for the life that we live right now. Luke was passionate about Theophilus, those who would read his works, and by God's inspiration, us, that we would not be deceived by the uncertainty, that we would not be deceived by the, the air of the, the religious pluralism that surrounded Theophilus in the Roman Empire that so much surrounds us right now in the place that we live and find ourselves. He wanted Theophilus, a, a skeptic much like himself, to be certain about what he had learned and maybe even begun to believe in. And he wrote these two books to help him and to help us escape the, the fog, to escape the gray, the uncertainty that so grips our lives. And as we study the book of Acts, as we dig into the book of Acts and we walk through the book of Acts, it has the potential it has the potential to help you escape that same gray that settles in on your soul like a heavy fog. Acts can be powerful for you. Acts can be powerful for me. Acts can be powerful for us because it can help us make sense out of our life, out of our hope, out of our purpose. Because as we said in the beginning, if you're honest, and we say this around here all the time, if you're honest in this place, church, is often one of the most difficult places to really be honest. But if you're honest with yourself in those times that you allow yourself to be, you struggle with the same uncertainty that they did. You struggle with the same uncertainty that the Robert that I buried yesterday did. You struggle with the same uncertainty with those same questions that we talked about in the very beginning. Those are the very things that Luke is writing to free us from, to free us from the uncertainty of those things. So what was he writing to free us from? All that he had been taught, all that Theophilus had been taught. We're going really slow. Is that all right with you this morning? Going really slow. I want you to grab this. What does he want Theo to be certain about? He said all the things that he had been taught. And no doubt, Theophilus would have come into contact with a message that told him that we have an incom incomparably great God who calls us to delight in him. I mean, this is the very thing that Chris has been preaching about for the last four weeks. We have an incomparably great God who calls us, his creation, to delight in him. An incomparably great God who calls us, his creation, to enjoy him. And for Theophilus and those who would hear this and they were confronted with that very message, it had to be scandalous to them. Because all that they know and, and all that we really know, if we're honest, 
is the idea that there is some kind of pantheon of man-made deities, man-made gods, man-made hopes for security and promise and affluence and, and hope that require us pleasing them. For Theophilus, he had spent his life going to temple after temple and place after place, offering sacrifice after sacrifice for the fertility of his family, for the fertility of his crops, for the safety of his home, for protection in his work, for his job to prosper. God after God, thing after thing, doing what he thought he was supposed to do in the system that had been erected for him to please those gods that they might turn around and bless his life. And when it didn't happen the way that he had thought it would happen, he'd have to figure out what he might have done wrong so that he could go back and he can rectify it with another process of behaviors or sacrifices that he would have to do to make that God happy with him again so that that God would come and do the very thing that he thought he needed that God to do. And so when he was confronted with what he had been taught and he had heard that there was an incomparably great God who, unlike the gods that he was familiar with, had created everything that is out of absolutely nothing, including himself, and he holds all that he had created in its presence and in its place by his own word. And he knows the stars and the galaxies and the skies, and he calls them by name. Stephen. Tom. And this incomparably great God has called him to delight in him. No doubt Theophilus had been confronted with the scandal of this God. And no doubt he would have been confronted with the reality that he has an unbelievably self-righteous and depraved heart that continuously chooses to reject the goodness of that great God and the mercy of that great God and seek the very things this great God has provided for him in himself in other things. No doubt Theophilus would have been confronted by those two realities. But here's where Luke zeroes in in his work. Here's where Luke is going to zero in in the things that he first wrote to Theophilus that he might have certainty in what he had been taught. No doubt, no doubt that Theo then had been confronted with the reality that not only do we have an incomparably great God who calls us to delight in him, but yet we have an unbelievably sinful and self-righteous heart that fails to do the very thing we were created to do. He had been confronted with the reality that we have a scandalously gracious Savior. That in the midst of all of that, and in his efforts to go into please, to please God, to try to make God respond to him the way he wanted to, to do whatever he could do to not upset God, and he had heard that this God doesn't want us to just do what we have to do to please him. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to delight in him, and he wants us to trust him. But as he learned that he couldn't do that, that in everything that he did, he sought to do things other than that very thing, he had been confronted with the reality that that God didn't leave him in his own inability. But in a scandal of scandals, that incomparably great God had sent his one and only son to do the very thing that Theophilus was created to do, but yet fails to do. This God sent his son to do that very thing in his place and then to lay his own life down and die in the most humiliating and scandalous of ways that you could find in Rome on a cross to pay the price for Theophilus' unwillingness to do the very thing that he was created for so that he, because of what that God did for him, could now enjoy him the way he was designed to do unbelievably scandalous information that Theophilus had been confronted with. The gospel had come to him. It had wrecked the world. It had wrecked the mindset. It had wrecked the understanding that he had about how he was supposed to live, who he was, why he was here, what he was supposed to do, and he had begun to struggle with that message. And here's what his friend Luke did. I wonder if you would do this for anybody. I wonder if you would do what Luke did. Luke sat down and he took all that Theophilus had been taught. He took the message of the gospel from the beginning to the end and he sat down and he compiled an orderly account so that Theophilus, so that the people who could hear, so that you and I could have certainty, so that we could have certainty in all that we had been taught and all that we knew. Flip back over to Acts chapter 1. If you don't believe me, I'm going to prove it to you. Acts 
In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Theo had been confronted by the reality of an incomparably great God, by the reality of his self-righteously depraved heart, and by the reality of a scandalously gracious Savior. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke sat down and created an orderly account so that Theo could have certainty, hope, comfort, and find enjoyment in the very thing that he had been taught. So volume one, we could say, is about a scandalously gracious God that we're called to enjoy. Is that fair? Volume one of Luke's gospel, we have a scandalously gracious God that we're called to enjoy. So what about Acts? Now we actually get to Acts. Is that all right? We're going to get to Acts now. If part one is all about what Jesus began to do and teach, then what's Acts about? If you've been around the church for a while at all, you may have a predisposition to this. For a lot of people, Acts is about the Holy Spirit. Acts is about miracles. Acts is about the church. Acts is about how we're supposed to live. Acts is about, I don't know, tongues or uh, whatever you don't want it to be about. Acts is about all kinds of things to a lot of people when they come to the book of the Bible, but Luke's really clear. If volume one is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, what do you think volume two is about? All that Jesus continues to do and teach. Acts is not about the church. Acts is not about just the Holy Spirit. Acts is not just about miracles. Acts is just not about the way we live together. Acts is just not about the spread of the gospel. Acts is about all that Jesus continues to do and teach. It's about Jesus. Acts is about what Jesus is doing right now, where he is, what he is doing from where he is, and why he is doing what he is doing from where he is. I like that. Thank you. Man. Those music stands fall every time I do that. I like that. Acts is about what Jesus is doing, where he is doing it from, and why he is doing what he is doing, where he is doing it from. And what is that? I'll tell you really simply. He is empowering his people, you and I, to bear witness to the transforming power of his message, his gospel, and to bear witnesses to a watching world that he is all sufficient in our lives that we enjoy God, that is what he is doing right now. That is what the book of Acts is all about, but we're going to read. We're going to read, and I'm going to point one thing out to you, and then I'm going to leave you hanging. Is that all right? Is that all right? I usually don't tell you I'm going to do that, but I'm going to leave you hanging. So that's how we're going to start. Let's keep, let's keep reading. We have a scandalously gracious God that we are called to enjoy, and we can say in Acts that he has a mission that we're created to engage in. Let's start reading and we'll, you'll see it. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke is going back to where he ended his first volume. He's recapping to move forward to what he's trying to give us certainty of here in, in Acts. And he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So if you go back this week and read chapter 24 of the book of Luke, you will find much of what he just said. He's recapping, but he's going to fill in a couple of pieces just to kind of give you a few details that he didn't give at the end of his first volume because he's writing a second volume. Here's what he says in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you get what they're doing? I mean, Jesus has, has been about his work with them on earth. He has laid his life down, been crucified. He's died, he's been put in the tomb, and he's been resurrected. And could you, I mean, you imagine, if you've been around the story, what that must have felt like to them. If you're new to the story, imagine what it felt like to be with him, to really try to understand but not quite get what it was he was really doing. 
to have all this hope wrapped up in, in, in his purposes and to have this entire generational hope for a freedom that God had promised you for so long coming in this person and then he lays himself down and dies. He's buried. Three days. I mean, you imagine what that must have felt like for the people that were with him? But then God, in vindicating Jesus' work, he raises him from the dead. And the celebration occurs with the apostles and the disciples as he reappears to them. And, and so here they are. They're with him. They're with him. So now they're with Jesus. He's been raised from the dead and he's back with them and he's teaching them. And here's their question. Now, go do what you're going to finish what you started, right? The hope had been that you were going to restore our people, that you were going to restore our nation, that we would no longer be slaves to these foreign nations, that you would set the kingdom of God, the kingdom of David, back up in its rightful place. You are that one we we're waiting for. Now, when are you going to do it? He's alive. He's got the power. What does he do? I mean, you've got to, you've got to put yourself in their place. I mean, you've got to put yourself in that. This is the fulfillment. They've got all the hope now. There's Jesus he beat death. What in the world does Rome have to offer? Jesus beat death. The kingdom is now going to be established. They're going to go back to asking themselves, who's going to get that spot on the right? Did he ever answer that question? Who was going to sit at his right hand when he came into power? You know they're just starting to ask themselves all this again. Jesus, when are you going to restore and build your kingdom? Here's what he says. It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But here, here's what I'm going to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus, when are you going to put your throne back in the middle of Jerusalem? When are we going to have our positions of authority? When are the Romans going to come and bow down to us? When are we going to set up the taxes? When are we going to set up the laws? When are we going to set up the kingdom? Jesus, when are you going to do this? And he says, here, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to receive power just as I had promised you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and you're going to receive power and then you, you're going to go and be my witnesses. But wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. You just beat death. You just rose from the grave. You just lived the life that we were created to live. You did all that we could never do. What do you mean we're going to go and be your witnesses? Do you imagine the confusion and the frustration? I mean, we read through this so fast. Imagine what it must have felt like for them to hear this. You are going to go be my witnesses. in Samaria? I mean, I thought when you had the kingdom, we might just burn that place. I mean, they're not past calling down brimstone if you go back and read the Gospels. They've asked Jesus before, should we just call down brimstone on these people? Should we just call down fire and burn them up? Samaria? Ends of the, ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, if you don't think they're frustrated enough, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. He was gone, he came back. Set up your kingdom. No, I'm going to empower you and you're going to go. And he's gone. He's back up. He's gone. Can you imagine the frustration? I mean, come on, be human for him for a second. Think about what it must have felt like for them. And while they were gazing into heaven, and Matthew tells us they were gazing into heaven, and some people were wondering what was going on. Like, oh, I don't know, I doubt that. Was that really him? You know, there were some people that doubt. You know, Luke doesn't give us that information. But they were gazing into heaven. And as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, because Jesus was just here and he went up there. Seems like a really stupid question, doesn't it? Why are you gazing into heaven? Well, he needs to come back and do what he needs to do. No, he just told you what he's going to do. He just told you. How little trust you actually have. You just saw the resurrected Jesus. He just taught you for 40 days. By many convincing proofs, he showed you who he was. And then he told you what he's going to do. Why are you standing around looking like you don't know what's going on? Why are you gazing into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And in the few minutes we've got left, we're going to zero in on one verse in there. One verse to leave you hanging for the rest of our time together. Verse 8. Jesus, you're going to make it all right now, right? 
You're going to set it all up the way it's supposed to be right now, right? He said, no. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We have a scandalously gracious God who has called us to enjoy him and engage with him in his mission. He has saved us and empowered us to be a part of his redemptive work from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. We have a scandalously gracious God who has called us to enjoy him and to engage in his mission to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth enjoy the very same grace that we enjoy. That is the point of the book of Acts. What is the mission? I'm not going to tell you. We're going to look at the details of it starting next week. We'll sum it up like this. We are called and empowered to be a part of God's redemptive purpose, to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation delight in God and in his absolutely scandalous grace. We're going to make more sense of it starting next week, but here's what I want you to see, and this is where we get this all befuddled in the church especially now. I don't think they used to screw this up the way we screw it up now. Mission, we talk about mission. Mission is not ours. I want you to hear this. It's going to be important as we go through Acts. Mission is not ours. Mission is God's. We've made the mistake of turning mission into a noun. We see it as something that we do. Mission is something we do. Mission is God's. Chris Wright said that God does not have a mission for his church in the world. God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not created for the church. The church was created for God's mission. This is the story of the book of Acts. This is the story of the book of Acts. And as we go through it together, as we spend time understanding that together, my prayer is that it, by God's grace, will absolutely flip the script and, and rewrite the questions that we have asked ourselves the wrong way for so long. The questions we started out with when we started talking this morning. Maybe we'll stop, by God's grace, here's my prayer, we'll stop asking, where does God fit into the story of my life? And by God's grace, as we go through the book of Acts and understand his calling on us, we'll begin to ask, where does my life fit into the story of God's mission? You hear the difference? How does God fit into the story of my life? No, 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 wrong question. All that breeds is uncertainty and confusion. Instead, maybe we'll begin to ask, how does my life fit into the story of God's mission? And maybe we'll stop asking, what is God's plan for my life? Instead, maybe by his grace, we'll be Courageous enough to ask, how can I see my life caught up into God's plan of redemption? Not what is God's little unique tailored plan for my life, but how can I see my life as caught up in God's plan of redemption? And maybe we'll stop asking the simple question of how do I just take this Bible and apply it to my life? But maybe we can join that question with another and we can say, how can I apply my life to the story of this Bible? How can I apply my life to the story of this Bible? But most importantly, and what struck me the most yesterday, as I was in the middle of this funeral and looked out on a room full of people just like this who had absolutely no hope at all, and spent an afternoon and an evening with people who had no certainty about anything at all. Maybe we'll stop asking the question, what purpose does God have for my life? Maybe we'll stop asking the question, what purpose does God have for my life? And we'll begin to ask a better question. What kind of me does God want for his mission? 
what kind of me does God want for his purposes? It's not what purposes does God have for me, but what kind of me does God want for his purposes? We have a scandalously gracious Savior who has called us and empowered us to engage with him in his mission of redemption. The thing we'll see next week, he's guaranteed its success. He's guaranteed its success. So as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to talk about two things, enjoying God and engaging his mission. Enjoying God and engaging his mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rewriting the questions that we're so prone to ask ourselves. Thank you for rescuing us from uncertainty. (laughs) Thank you for rescuing us from the fog that sets in on our hearts and sets in on our souls. Father, I pray in the next weeks as we go through your word together that you would reshape how we understand not only who we are, but the life that we live here on this earth. May we see the story of our lives as caught up into the bigger story of your redemption. May we see the purpose of our lives as caught up in your greater purpose to redeem all of creation, to reflect your glory. (laughs) May we see the time that we have here on this earth as time that we apply to your great mission of redemption. And we ask that as you do that by your spirit, graciously in our hearts, Lord, a certainty and a confidence and a hope and a passion and a loyalty to your gospel will be formed anew in our hearts. All of that, Father, we ask that you would be made much of, not that this church, not that anyone's name, not that any one thing would be made much of, but that you would be made much of through us. And we can ask this, Lord, because of your scandalous grace and your scandalous Savior, Jesus, who did what we could not do in our place for us. Amen.